Bridget Stomberg. And I'm Lisa DeSimone. And this is Taxes for the Masses. Today's episode is on one policy response to increased negative public and political attention on corporate tax avoidance, tax shaming. In recent years, many countries have debated mandating more public disclosure of otherwise confidential or potentially sensitive tax information in the hopes of shaming companies into compliance. In 2016, the UK government passed legislation requiring large businesses to publicly disclose narratives about their tax strategies. Around the same time, the Australian Taxation Office made corporate tax return data public. Today, we invite two researchers who have extensively examined the consequences of these disclosures to tell us what they learned about the success of public shaming. Hello, B. Hello, Lisa. So today is a very exciting episode for us. You don't just get two tax nerds, you get four. This is the special thing that we are bringing our listeners. This is our 10th episode of the podcast, and so we decided to double the tax nerdery in celebration. Double the nerdery. Double the fun. Since the global financial crisis, there's been a growing interest in the tax avoidance strategies used by the wealthy as well as large corporations. But directly observing how these taxpayers structure their global transactions to minimize taxes is notoriously difficult. That's right. Tax return information is traditionally confidential, shared only with the taxing authority. And surprise, surprise, taxpayers don't really tend to voluntarily disclose information about their taxes to the public. Over the past 10 years, there have been growing international efforts aimed at increasing tax transparency, and they've started to gain popular support and traction. Right. So there's been a lot of increased tax disclosure to tax authorities in recent years. What's more, the OECD encouraged tax authorities to share this information with each other. And more recently, these debates have centered around whether some version of these types of disclosures or other disclosures about corporate taxes should also be made available to the public. To better understand both the motivation behind increased public corporate tax disclosure and the potential efficacy of more required public tax disclosure, we turn to two tax accounting researchers who specialize in this topic, Junwei Jia and Jeff Hoops. We are so excited to introduce our very first guest here on Taxes for the Masses. Dr. Junwei Jia is an assistant professor of accounting at the May School of Business at Texas A&M University. Junwei received a doctorate in accounting at Indiana University, where she had the world's best dissertation advisor and our very own Dr. B. Stomberg. Junwei's dissertation focuses on a UK disclosure requirement intended to increase transparency about corporate tax avoidance. Junwei... Welcome to Taxes for the Masses. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. This is very exciting. We are so excited to have you here today. Can you please start by telling us a little bit about this tax strategy disclosure? How did you get interested in it? And what's it all about? Um, I found out about this disclosure requirement when it was still in the proposal stage. So when I saw the word tax strategy, like instinct in me says, okay, this is something big. Because what I had in mind is this is going to be like requiring companies to talk about all the dark secrets they have about their tax planning. I was like, okay, this is great. This is the most aggressive ever disclosure requirement I've ever seen. But later when it actually became effective, it actually is nothing like what I had in mind. So tax strategies specifically here are not referring to these dark secrets that companies have about their tax planning, but instead it's more 
um, at a high level broadly about how companies manage the tax-related issues that they have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. So there are four components that companies are required to talk about in this disclosure. So the first one is tax risk management. So specifically, these are something including um, the governance mechanisms companies have in place, who's in charge of approving certain tax planning strategies, um, who's involved. The second element is company's attitude towards tax planning. So think about if you're the CEO, you sit there and um, your CFO or tax director came up to you and say, hey, these are the 10 things we can do with our tax planning. Which one are we going to pick? So the third element is called tax risk appetite, which I find is the most exciting. Basically, it wants companies to say what level of tax risk you're willing to accept. And lastly, it's approach to dealing with the tax authority. Basically, tell people about like how you interact with the UK tax authority, the, the HMRC. So like you, I'm a little disappointed that we don't get to see all of the skeletons in the closet, because if these companies actually had to disclose their strategies, I mean, that would be fascinating, right? But right. it seems like one of the motivations that the UK had in passing this disclosure requirement was to engage in public shaming, increase public pressure on the companies for them specifically to be better corporate citizens of the UK and pay their quote unquote fair share of taxes. So the idea the UK tax authority had is companies definitely in the UK, uh, they do care about their reputation. So to the extent now you're required to speak publicly to everybody in terms of what you're doing, and if there's something they're doing that can be perceived as aggressive, they want to reconsider, do they really want to do, I mean, still engage in some of the aggressive behaviors. I just want to say like all things British, I feel like this is a very polite disclosure requirement. It's also very apropos that you're drinking tea right now. I came prepared from talking to you and learning from you and actually talking to some other executives, it seems like there's a little bit of a different relationship between taxpayers and the HMRC than what we see in the U.S. between taxpayers and the IRS. Can you talk a little bit more about that different approach to enforcement in the U.K.? So in the U.K., uh, especially when dealing with the large companies, um, their approach is to assign these agents almost like one-to-one to to a specific company. So it seems to me, based on reading through the lines, there are a lot of interactions before companies even file a tax return. Whenever a company feels like they have uncertainty, um, they can reach out because they have a designated person that they can contact and talk to. And also the UK tax authority, um, based on the tax returns they've seen from the companies, as well as these sort of one-to-one interaction, they assigned what they call like a risk rating to companies. So there will be companies that are considered low rating because they're always cooperative. They always seem to reach out early on and tell you everything they're doing um, and see if the, the tax authorities is on board, is in agree with their interpretation. But there are other companies, they will always be like, we don't want to give you any information about that. Do companies know their rating? They do. So it's actually a private information. Um, and it's surprising in this disclosure, there are a couple companies made it very clear that, oh, don't worry about that. We always receive a low risk rating. Basically, that's like assurance. We're, we're good. Don't, don't even worry about that. Um, so I think that's one fascinating um, aspect of this disclosure because companies are voluntarily reviewing some of the information they feel that could help managing this public perception. So you mentioned that 
companies have a lot of leeway and discretion in terms of how detailed they are. They have to address these four points in their disclosures, but it seems like they could be very succinct or they could be very verbose. So when you looked at these disclosures, what did you see? And I guess what we're really trying to get at here is, do you think that they're providing enough information to allow the public to shame? So that's a very good question. The length in terms of number of words ranges between about 200 words to like 4,000. So the 4,000 ones is almost like a 20-page report. So That's this, crazy. It is crazy. They spend so much time. Also, I have to spend a lot of time like kind of talking <laughs> information. But it just amazed me that there's so much variation and there'll be companies going out and be so above and beyond. So then going back to the second question, are they useful? I will say yes and no, especially in this case, this disclosure is mostly qualitative. No numbers required. I'll give an example. So a commonly C sentence company will say, we pay our fair share of tax. Mm -hmm. So if you give that sentence to like three people, I don't know, randomly sampled and say, like, what do you think? Do you think the company is paying enough of tax, you will probably get a lot of different answers. So the difficulty with like disclosures like this is they're telling you something, but at the same time, I don't know how I should respond. And I'm pretty sure different stakeholders, like if you ask shareholders, like stock investors versus consumers, they may have very different benchmark in terms of what is considered a fair share. So Junwei, did it work? Does it actually lead to a reduction in tax avoidance? Um, I did not find supporting evidence suggesting that companies are actually uh, reducing their tax avoidance in response to this disclosure requirement. And in your expert opinion, why don't you think it's working? First of all, um, I'm not even sure if the public is fully aware of this new disclosure. Mm. Um, so it's related to sort of the processing cause it puts the burden on the stakeholders to actually look out for this information. And I'm not even sure most of people are aware that it's out there so they can start looking for it. Um, second of all, I think the design of this disclosure requirement, um, especially considering the objective like it's trying to achieve, like changing behavior, it just doesn't feel like it has enough teeth. And lastly, I feel like the bar for compliance is so low that company just have to say something about these four things and they can say as much as they want and they also can be as silent as they want. So I think to bring it full circle and correct me if I'm wrong, the penalty for non-compliance from the HMRC's perspective is like 7,500 pounds. That sounds right. So that's nothing. So so we, we aren't really putting the onus on the tax authority to do something. What we are really doing is we're putting the onus, I think, on these watchdog groups, on customers and consumers to impose the penalty. So, so can you talk to our listeners a little bit about, about Starbucks and I'll just drink my passion tea while you do that. So Starbucks, as you mentioned in 2012, um, there's a news article revealed that they're engaging in some international tax planning, basically um, allowing the company to pay very little tax in the UK. And that uh, started almost like a pretty long period of public protest where the consumers are saying, we're not buying Starbucks anymore. And basically, shame on you. You're not paying UK taxes. We're not buying your coffee. Um, and eventually, the company decided voluntarily paying um, some taxes just to kind of appease the public and as an apology saying, like, here it is, we're paying our taxes. Interesting and kind of mind blowing to think of Starbucks voluntarily making tax payments when, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs came out and said, we've audited Starbucks and they don't owe any more taxes. And yet the consumer response was still so much and so negative that Starbucks decided to 
cut a check to the government. Well, let's be real. The price of my tea just went up by a dollar. So I cut the check to the government, <laughs> right? I mean, if we're, if we're going to be fair about it, I don't think I don't think uh, Starbucks shareholders lost any money on that deal. That's why public shaming is not really working that well yet. And now for our second guest, Dr. Jeff Hoops, Associate Professor at the University of North Carolina. Jeff received a doctorate in accounting from the University of Michigan and spent time on the faculty at the Ohio State University before moving to UNC, where he is the research director of the UNC Tax Center. Jeff also writes a blog called The Write-Off and is the curator of the Tax Museum. Jeff, welcome to Taxes for the Masses. Thank you for having me. You recently had an open letter asking for an item to be collected for the purposes of the tax museum. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And did you get a response? Yeah, so I requested of um, House member AOC, as we'll call her, that she donate her tax thirst dress. And when I say her tax thirst dress, I mean, she didn't ever own the dress. She borrowed it for like a night, but it would be great to have the dress. And so I asked if she would just kindly send it to the tax museum. I, uh, my expectation for getting the dress or any reply was zero. <laughs> but my expectation for being entertained by having uh, written the letter and actually sent it was uh, quite high. So I did it. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your Australian tax strategy disclosure paper? Yeah. So what we look at is this law, this this uh, law that passed in Australia is actually in 2013. And the law was basically re- required the Australian Taxation Office, uh, the, the IRS of Australia, the ATO, to publicly disclose to the Australian public the tax liabilities, how much, how much these uh, large companies paid in taxes. And so this wasn't previously disclosed. So, I mean, like in the United States, you get financial statements for these Australian firms, at least for the ones that are public. You get some information for the ones that are private, more than you get in the the United States. But you didn't actually get like the dollar value that they actually sent paid in taxes. So they ended up disclosing for the public firms at the end of 2015. And uh, after a few months, they disclosed for the private firms what the actual tax payments were. If I were to summarize the kind of the results of the paper, the findings of the paper, is you just don't see a whole lot of effect, uh, like real effect for companies when you publicly release their um, tax information. Don't see a huge stock market reaction, a little bit of one, but not a, a huge one. Uh, the one thing you do see uh, in the document of the paper is you do see firms trying to get out of the disclosure. So this was a disclosure only for firms above a certain size threshold. And you do find, and this was the, the piece that the ATO had to help with with their data, you do find firms doing something to fall below the disclosure threshold. So firms, for whatever reason, really don't like to be disclosed, but there doesn't <laughs> seem to be any, um, any large effect of being disclosed, which I think is pretty consistent with a, a lot of the accounting literature, actually, which finds large perceived costs of reputational costs of tax planning but not huge uh, actual costs, or at least that we've been able to measure so far. Was that your expectation going into the project or what did you expect to find at the beginning of this research project? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I think at that point in my career, I was still hoping that because, I mean, kind of we had this narrative built up in accounting that there are these reputational costs of, of tax avoidance. So I was mm-hmm. expecting, you know, A, B, I knew that the media had covered it. I expected that the media would cover something that the public cared about and that media coverage of something might actually change public opinion on something. Um, So I I expected to see at least like public opinion shift a little bit 
uh, it didn't at all. I don't know that I had any expectations for actual tax um, tax behavior. Do you think that the ATO could have designed the disclosure differently to make it more informative? Or do you think that really it's just not, even though there's a lot of complaining, maybe it's just not something the public really cares about? Yeah, so there's two different components to, to what, uh, what um, to your question. Is number one kind of the design. I mean, when we say public disclosure, there's a lot of different ways that you could actually carry that out administratively, and I think it could make a difference. So this is the ATO just put on their on their website a spreadsheet that has like hundreds of, of uh, rows of data. That's a hmm. lot to think about all at once. So you have those hundreds of rows, hundreds of rows of data. I mean, the media is going to pick up the, mo- the most sensational study stories. You'll see a few dozen media articles for two weeks, and that's it. My understanding is that a year later or so, the Australian Taxation Office also incorporated qualitative disclosures. Yeah. So that reminds me of my second point because it was, exa- it was exactly my second point. Yeah. So you get this, you get these quantitative disclosures, which are just like how much you're paying in taxes. Uh, but a lot of that is just like not in context at all. Qantas Airlines, for example, in Australia, you pay very little to nothing in taxes, but if they don't make any money, they don't actually owe any taxes. Right. And so people are going to be upset when they see Qantas paying zero, whereas you could have disclosure, which would say, you know, over the past five years, Qantas hasn't made that much money, and we had this big problem, and we have this large NOL that we're working through, and that's why, like the whole airline industry, we're not doing so well, and we haven't paid anything in taxes. I think in general, as tax people, we, we way over-perceive the amount people care about taxes, right? So we see articles in the media about people not caring much about taxes. I don't think most people care about taxes at all. Think about corporate taxes at all, are concerned about how much comp- uh, companies pay in taxes at all. So to the extent that there's like some public uh, public demand for this information, that's probably going to like start with politicians trying to work their base into demanding something that they then can deliver on. I think that there's also a difference between quote unquote caring about something and then changing your behavior in response to it. I presented uh, last week and it was a group of students, I would guess they're probably pretty progressive uh, and into care- caring about these things. I asked them whether they had ever not bought something because of a company's tax behavior, whether they boycotted anything because of tax <laughs> behavior. Uh, one person raised their hand and they said that they had boycotted a company for one single day. Uh, so of the 25, we had one person who had boycotted for one day, and then they actually admitted that they on that day they had used some of the company's products, but not all the products they might have, might it's have pro- used. Probably not a, a, a big economic impact. Therein lies the trouble with shaming. Yeah. about today's episode is that we had way more tax nerdery than usual. Yes, I agree. It was not only great to talk with Junwei and Jeff, it was also good to talk about the research that we have testing the assumption that public pressure could arrest corporate tax avoidance. Absolutely. Just to back up a second, when you ask executives and boards of directors if they think about the reputational cost of tax avoidance, When considering a tax strategy, most of them will say yes, they actively want to try to mitigate the risk of making headlines for a questionable tax avoidance strategy. Which is super interesting because despite those claims that managers care about this stuff, the two studies that we highlighted today provide pretty scant evidence that shaming actually works. 
And it's not just these two studies. It's consistent with findings of a study you have that even negative media attention to a corporation's taxes in national news outlets does little to change their tax avoidance behavior. To be fair, there is some evidence on the other side of the coin. We do have some evidence that firms will change their behavior in response to shaming. So for example, in response to negative media coverage and threats of boycotts by customers, like we talked about with Junwei, Starbucks voluntarily made those tax payments to the HMRC in 2013. And we also have some academic evidence that firms changed their required UK tax disclosures after scrutiny from watchdog groups. Also here in the US, there's some evidence that firms with valuable brands tend to engage in less tax avoidance as well as evidence of investor sell-offs following news articles indicating a firm engaged in a tax shelter, the most egregious form of tax avoidance. But upon further review, it turns out the stock prices for these firms only fell over a very short window of time. They bounced back within a couple of weeks. And going back to that setting, the same group of firms that were revealed to have engaged in these most aggressive tax shelters, We don't really see strong evidence that it led to negative outcomes for them. We don't see evidence of executive turnovers, a reduction in sales, an increase in advertising expenditures to try to repair their reputation. So we just don't have a lot of strong evidence in the U.S. that shaming works. So if I had to summarize the good, I'd say it's that we are at least researching shaming and we're researching these reputational effects of tax avoidance. Yes. But the bad news is we don't really have any clear answers yet. And when it comes to these sort of, I'll call them formal or government sanctioned shaming policies, Mm -hmm. we don't have a lot of evidence that they're working. Things aren't really looking great for these types of policies. And that leads us to the ugly. Taxpayers are getting increasingly more sophisticated at avoiding taxes and tax authorities, especially here in the U.S., are simply struggling to keep up. Public shaming almost feels desperate in today's day and age. I think desperate is a great adjective. Calling for more disclosures, I think, just shifts the focus of Mm. the problem to the taxpayers once again. Right. It's giving politicians some talking points, some things that they can sound like they're being tough on taxes, tough on corporate tax avoidance. And I think they're maybe doing it in the hopes that they can make everybody forget that they're the ones who actually have the power to change the laws or fund the IRS, you know, do meaningful things that might actually lead to a reduction in corporate tax rates. Boom. Mic drop. Well, that's all we have time for today. I'm Lisa DeSimone. And I'm Bridget Stomberg. Be sure to join us for more tax nerdery on future episodes of Taxes for the Masses.